Thank you for joining us today. At ResLife, our mission is to develop committed followers of Jesus Christ to reach the world. Our content is created to equip and empower you in God's purpose. We hope you enjoy this message. Yeah. Good morning. Hey, man, stand up one more time, everybody, if you would. I want you to turn to somebody and say, today we're going to get something brand new from the Bible. Tell that to your neighbor. Today we're going to get something brand new from the Bible. Amen. And then you may be seated. We're, we're so glad to be here, and we love Pastor Dwayne and Jeannie. Right now we're filming a series of TV programs about our testimony. And, of course, a major part of my testimony is when I came to speak at Res Life back in the old people's church. And I was back in Pastor Dwayne's office before the service began, and he got on the phone with another preacher, and together they conned me into a trip to the Soviet Union. And I remember thinking, I am so trapped in this office. I do not want to go to the Soviet Union. I don't even like missionaries. I don't like missions. I don't want anything to do with this. But before I walked out of that office, I had committed that I would join them on a trip to the Soviet Union. I remember thinking, what have I done? And this week, as we prepared for those TV programs, I found a photo of me and Pastor Dwayne and John Verican and Dave Duell, all of us, Dwayne, standing in the market in Riga with all those fur foxes wrapped around our necks. It is hysterical. And of course, I always thank you, and I want to thank you publicly for being our friend. And I am today where we are because you conned me into that trip. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It changed my life. Amen. I'm so thankful for you. And what a wonderful church that you're a part of. Aren't you grateful for your church? Amen. I want you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to change my message. Is that all right? And I'm going to be preaching something different in all three services today. But we're going to begin in Revelation chapter 1. And as you turn there, I just want to give you the good report that things are good in Russia. God is moving in Moscow. People often ask me if we have any kind of opposition. Zero. We have zero opposition in the city of Moscow. In fact, I really feel in some ways we have more freedom in Moscow today than you have in the United States. The door is simply open for us to preach the gospel. Of course, we have to obey the rules, but you have to do that in any civilization, in any society. But really, the doors are open. Just recently, we had a service in our facility that was just remarkable. We ordained a bishop into the ministry. It was his service, and that night I was invited to speak. And that night, there were members of the presidential administration there because it was such a notable event. Multiple, multiple members of the KGB. And that night, I spoke on my new book called Crazy. And I talked about the need for us to keep our head on straight in this world that seems to have gone crazy. And that night, I really addressed the issue of gender confusion, a lot of the nonsense that's happening in the West, and when that service was over, it is amazing to me, but at the end of that service, I met with a group from the KGB. Today, they're called the FSB. And they said, if we were allowed to have a foreigner to speak to us, you would be the one we would want to speak to us. What you have spoken from your pulpit tonight is exactly the policy of this government on moral issues. And I walked away from them thinking, that is just amazing. Look what God 
has done in Russia. We've gone from black to light. I know you hear a lot of nonsense in the news. It's nonsense. God is moving in Russia. And I'm just so thrilled with what he's doing. It's wonderful. But, so I wanted to give you that report, but let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for this time in the Word of God. And Holy Spirit, today I look to you as the great teacher. You are the one who authored this book, and you are truly the only one that has the authority to teach it. And today we look to you. We ask you to be the great teacher. We ask you to be the revelator. We ask that today we would not just hear the word of God, but we ask you to transport us into the Bible today until we feel it, we see it, we experience it, and we leave having been transformed by it. And we thank you for this in the wonderful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Open your Bible to Revelation chapter 1. And today we're going to begin in verse 1. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass, and he sent it and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. If you have an ink pen or a pencil today, I want you to either underline or circle that word John in verse 1. He sent it by his angel unto his servant John. Then if you would look at verse 4, it says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. So now in the first four verses of this book, the writer of the book has identified himself as John already twice, just in the first four verses. So in verse 1, he identifies himself as John. In verse 4, he says, John. Then when you come to verse 9, he says, I, John. Now a third time, in nine verses... He identifies himself as John, and even more when you get to verse 9, he doesn't just say John, he says, I, John. That word I in Greek is the word ego. He's drawing attention to himself. It's really me. This is John speaking to you. And the reason John has identified himself three times in these chapters is because that by the time that the people have received the book of Revelation, they have not seen or heard from John for more than two years. What happened to John? John was the apostle who was presiding over the city of Ephesus and over all of Asia Minor about the year 92 AD. Up until that time, the apostle Paul had been the apostle who started the church in Ephesus, and from Ephesus, Paul launched the church in Smyrna, in Philadelphia, Laodicea, Pergamum, Sardis, all of the cities in the Lycus region valley, and Paul had been the notable, notable apostle for that region. But then in the year 63 and 64, something amazing took place in the city of Rome. Nero is in power, and Nero began to declare his own divinity. And Nero was so obsessed with himself that he believed he was the greatest among the human race, he believed he was the greatest musician, he was the greatest architect, he was the greatest writer, he truly was obsessed with himself. And because Nero believed that he was God living among the people, he believed that he needed to have a house bigger than anybody else's house. So he wanted to build a palace right in the middle of Rome, 
and it was going to be called the Golden Palace. He went to the Roman Senate. He asked the Roman Senate for permission to raise all the buildings in one section of Rome so he could build his new palace, which was going to be 300 acres in size. The Roman Senate said no. So Nero went to his villa just on the outside of Rome and put torches into the hands of his servants, dispatched them into the city of Rome, and they started a fire where the Circus Maximus was. And very quickly, the fire began to spread into all the sections of Rome, and the fires of Rome burned for more than 30 days. And at the end of those 30 days, the city of Rome had suffered tremendously. But the fire was effective. No one knew who started the fire, but the fire had totally destroyed all the buildings in the area where Nero wanted to build his new palace. And when the buildings were destroyed, he had them raised, and he began the construction of his massive, massive palace. Out in front of the palace, he constructed a statue which is called the Colossus. It was a 90-foot statue of Nero with a head like the god Helios, and he portrayed himself as god of the Roman Empire. Eventually, it was torn down, and they built in its place something called the Colosseum. That's why it's called the Colosseum. It was built where the Colossus statue of Nero had once stood. But after Nero built his palace, rumors began to spread through the city of Rome that Nero was the one who instigated the flame. And to save himself, he concocted a plan to lay the blame on someone else. So Nero went before the Roman Senate, and he said, how could you think that I, Nero, would burn down my beloved city? I will tell you who has done this. He said, there's a group in our city called Christians, and they've been standing on our street quarters publicly preaching about a future big fire that is coming to the earth. We should have listened to them because they were forecasting what they were going to do in our city. They were declaring they were going to burn down the city. And by the time he was finished presenting this argument to the Senate, the tables had turned, and Nero was no longer blamed for the fire which he instigated, but now the Christians became the scapegoat. And the reason that Christians were burned at the stake is because Romans punished you according to your crime. If you were a thief, then they cut off your hand. If you were an arsonist, then they burned you, and Christians died as arsonists. And the Apostle Paul has been arrested. He's been placed in jail. And about the year 67 or 68, Paul lost his head in the city of Rome. Paul knew that he was going to die, He writes about it in 2 Timothy chapter 4 where he says, the time of my departure is at hand. No sense of fear. Paul was thrilled that finally he was going to see Jesus. He says, now there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give unto me. He was looking forward to his departure, but really he was talking about his own decapitation. And history tells us that when Paul was decapitated, and actually you can go to this very place in Rome today, he ran to the column where they were going to decapitate him, embraced it with his arms, laid his head on it, and said, proceed. He embraced it with victory. But when Paul died, suddenly Asia had no bishop. Paul had been the presiding bishop of the area at that time, but because the Apostle John was already living in Asia at the time, he stepped into that position, 
And John became the presiding elder or the presiding bishop for all of the churches in Asia. They all reported directly to him. But John lived in Ephesus. He couldn't live directly in the city of Ephesus because it would have brought too much attention to him. And because he was a leader of pastors and a leader of leaders, people from all over Asia were coming to see John. So John decided to live in a remote place on the top of a hill just behind the temple of Artemis. The temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, massive. There were 6,000 pagan priestess who served in this temple. And John's house was literally located on the hill just above the temple of Artemis. You know, today you hear people talk about, well, we really want to do a work in our city, but we're living in such a dark, demonic place. Look where John was living. He was literally living above the temple of Artemis. From his house, he could look down on that horrible, dark, deviant place. He could see the smoke coming out of the top of the roof from his house. He could hear the eerie music coming out of the temple of Artemis, but it had no effect on his ministry. In fact, it was the perfect camouflage. He hid behind the temple and the local police didn't bother him because it was over there behind the temple. And from that hilltop where John lived, John entertained leaders who came from all of Asia to see him, to receive advice from the last living of the first 12 apostles of Jesus. It seems that one day John had come into the city of Ephesus himself. The city of Ephesus was an illustrious city, but it was a very dark spiritual place. And at the very heart of Ephesus, there was a square called Domitian Square with a huge temple built to the worship of the emperor Domitian. And when you walked through that vicinity, you were required by law to bow before a statue of Domitian and to burn a pinch of incense in front of that statue. And it seems that John had come through that region, and when he walked through that region on his way from the lower city up into the top part of Ephesus, he walked past one of those images and did not bow and did not burn a pinch of incense. Instead, he just walked right by. And apparently police took note of this. So one day, John was at his home behind the temple of Artemis on his hilltop, just doing his ministry when there was a knock on his door. And when John answered the door, John, a man already in his early 90s, he had committed no crime, he had lived a godly life, he had a good reputation, but he failed to do what the government told him to do. He did not burn a pinch of incense in front of a statue. So there was a knock on the door, and the police were there, and they arrested him. When the emperor Domitian in Rome heard that the last of Jesus' 12 apostles had been arrested, he was so thrilled because Domitian, by this time, was making his effort to totally extinguish the Christian faith. And he called for John to be delivered to the city of Rome. So the old apostle, arrested in the city of Ephesus, was placed on a ship there in the man-made harbor of Ephesus, sailed down the Caister River out into the sea, and sailed all the way to the city of Rome. And when he arrived in Rome, he was literally brought into the palace of Domitian. And when he stood before Domitian, Domitian commanded him to reject his faith and to reject Jesus. And the early church fathers tell us that John refused and said, I cannot deny the one that has been so faithful to me. 
And Domitian said, if you do not reject Jesus, we will kill you. And John said, bring on the fire. And early history tells us that Domitian gave the order for John to be boiled in oil. Well, I don't know if any of you have ever been splattered by hot oil. That's a bad experience. How would you like to be boiled in oil? And the way the Romans did this was horrific. They would bind a person with ropes, and rather than just plop the person in the oil, they decided to let the person experience his own boiling. So they would put his feet into the oil first so he could watch his own feet be cooked. And then they would dip him up to his knees, then up to his waist, then up to his chest, so the sufferer would experience his own boiling. And early church fathers record this event over and over and over and over, so we know this is not legend, this is fact. They put John into the oil, and just like when you cook a chicken, eventually the meat falls off the bones. Domitian gave the order for the flesh hook to be drugged through the oil to pull up the skeleton of the old apostle. And all the early church fathers recorded that when the flesh hook came up out of the oil, John was sitting on the hook, completely unscathed, completely unburned, riding the hook as it came up out of the oil. He had been sustained by the power of God. And when Domitian saw this, he was so terrified of this man, he said, get him out of my sight. Send him to the Isle of Patmos. What a story for John. In his early 90s, he's committed no crime. He's loved his city. He's been a good citizen. He just failed to burn a pinch of incense. Now as an elderly man, he's traveling on a ship, which is a very difficult journey from the harbor of Ephesus to the port of Rome, stands before Domitian. He is boiled in oil, survives it, completely unburned. Now he's put back on a ship where he is dispatched again to the harbor of Ephesus. And from Ephesus, he retrieves his secretary, whose name was Prochorus. He and Prochorus together are put on a ship and they travel 60 miles into the Aegean Sea to the Isle of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos was a horrible place. The Isle of Patmos was a desolate place. No trees, no vegetation. All the civilizations that had been on Patmos previous to this had stripped it of all of its trees. In fact, there was so little vegetation on Patmos, even animals had a hard time living on Patmos. There was only one source of drinkable water on the entire island of Patmos. It was a barren rock in the middle of the Aegean Sea. And now John disembarks from his ship with his secretary, whose name was Prochorus. It was very common in those days for notable people to have secretaries. The Apostle Paul had a secretary whose name was Luke. Luke was Paul's secretary. He traveled everywhere that Paul went. Peter had a secretary. Peter's secretary was named John Mark. That's why we have the Gospel of Mark, which really is not the Gospel of Mark. It is the Gospel of Peter. It was dictated by Peter, but Mark wrote it down, and that is why we call it the Gospel of Mark. The Apostle Paul had a secretary who was a very young boy. His name was Timothy. These were secretaries that served these men. And when John went to the Isle of Patmos, he came with his secretary whose name was Prochorus. Prochorus was one of the first men chosen to be a deacon in Acts chapter 6. He eventually became the bishop of Nicomedia and then later in life became the personal assistant to the Apostle John. 
And here you find such a picture of covenant and committed relationship. Though all of these secretaries, Prochorus, Mark, Luke, Timothy, none of them had ever been arrested. They willingly went with the one they served. They were going to go wherever they went because they were committed to their pastor. They were committed to their leader, and they willingly went with them to prison. And now Prochorus joins John on the ship. Well, on the ship, there were two kinds of criminals. There were common criminals. Common criminals were rapists, murderers, thieves, and then there were political criminals. Political criminals were the ones who refused to obey the rules of the state, those who would not worship an image of the emperor. And John was not a common criminal. He was a political offender. He was a political criminal. And when political criminals were released on Patmos, they were not herded with the common criminals, but they were released just to roam the isle. And the Romans knew that usually this would result in death because there was no water, there was no food, there was no vegetation. And John, with his helper, began to look for a place to live on the Isle of Patmos. And after scouring across the Isle of Patmos, they found a cave. And guess where the cave was? The cave was under the temple of Artemis. In Ephesus, he lived above the temple of Artemis. When he came to Patmos, he lived in a cave under a temple of Artemis. And today you can still visit that cave. It's called the Cave of the Revelation. And when John was there in that cave, he tells us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, you're going to see this in just a moment, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a great voice as of a trumpet behind me saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of them one like unto the Son of Man. And when John turned, he saw Jesus standing there in the midst of the seven candlesticks, which were symbols of the church. That's very important because when John turned to see Jesus, the first thing he saw was the church. It is impossible to look for Christ without also finding the church. Jesus and his church are inseparable. They are inseparable. But now John is on the Isle of Patmos. In this cave, in this wretched place, he's holed up in this cave, and from the cave he can look out, he can see the Aegean Sea in the distance. He's living there with Prochorus. And John writes to us in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Look at it if you would. He says, I, John. Remember in verse 1, he already identified himself as John. In verse 4, he identifies himself as John, now you come to verse 9. He says, I, John, it's really me. Hey, guys, this is me. The world did not know if he was still alive. They've not heard from him for nearly two years. And now when John writes, he says, John, John, I, John, this is really me, which means the church was hearing from the voice of their commander for the first time in two years. And he says, I, John, who also am your brother, Look at verse 9. 
and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle of Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. But in verse 9, when John says, I was in the isle, the word was, in Greek is the word genomai. The word genomai describes something that takes you off guard or by surprise. I would translate it like this. Through a series of events that were hard to predict and probably could never be replicated, I came to find myself in the isle called Patmos. The Greek says, in the isle being called Patmos. This was the Alcatraz of the ancient world. No one wanted to go to Alcatraz, to Patmos. And John writes, I was there for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ, which was very important because John was able to keep it clear in his mind. This was not a personal vendetta against him. This was not a personal persecution. He was there for the word of God. He understood what the issue really was. And then he tells us in verse 10, look at verse 10, Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. But notice if you would in verse 10, he says, I was. The word was in Greek is the word genomai. The word genomai describes something that takes you off guard or by surprise something that really takes you off guard. So if you're going to translate verse 10 correctly, John literally says, I don't know how it happened. I would not know how to replicate this experience in some way that I cannot explain. I came to find myself in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And in fact, there's such an element of surprise in this word genomai that this word genomai is the same word used in Acts chapter 10, to describe how Peter received his vision when he was on the rooftop. And the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 10 that Peter went on the rooftop to wait for lunch, and while he was waiting for lunch, the King James Version says he fell into a trance. Fell into is the word genomai, which means when Peter went there to wait for lunch, he didn't go there to have a trance. But while he was there waiting for lunch to be served, a genomai took place in some way that he could not explain. He did not anticipate it, wouldn't know how to replicate it, but somehow Peter tells us he slipped into another dimension. He just slipped into a trance. Now John uses the same word in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. John says, I don't know how it happened. I could never make it happen. It completely took me off guard and by surprise. In one moment, I was in my cave on the Isle of Patmos. Then Genomai, I suddenly came to find myself in the Spirit. Well, when you read this in the King James Version, the word spirit is capitalized, but in Greek there's no capital. It's lowercase. A better translation would be, I came to find myself in spirit. Or I suddenly, in some way, came to find myself standing in another dimension. And in a split second, John had passed from the natural realm across that very narrow line which separates dimensions. And John now suddenly, you know, I found himself somehow standing in another revelation, in another dimension. And he said that in that dimension he had a revelation 
of Jesus Christ, a revelation. That's what he says in verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, the word revelation is the Greek word apokalupsis. The word apo means the way the word kalupsis describes something that's veiled or something that is hidden. If you put the two words together, it means the veil, whatever has been concealing the thing, has been removed, and when it is removed, now you can clearly see it. An example would be the big picture window that you have in your house. When the curtains are closed, you can't see what's on the other side. What's on the other side is there. You're just not able to see it because your view is obstructed. But when someone begins to pull the string on the curtains and slowly the curtains begin to part and part and part and part, as the curtains pull apart, suddenly you're able to see something that previously you were unable to see because the curtains had blocked your view. Now you're getting a glimpse of something. It's always been there, but you were never able to see it before. This recently happened to me when I was in Jerusalem doing some programs. I've been in Jerusalem for two weeks in one room of my hotel and never opened the curtains the whole time I was there because I was working. On the last day, just before we left the hotel, I thought, I wonder what's outside those curtains. When I opened the curtains, I could not believe the view that was outside my window, and I had never seen it because I had never pulled apart the veil. Now John, in that cave, is having an experience which can only be given by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit begins to pull the string on the curtains of the spirit realm, and the spirit realm begins to part, and John begins to see into another dimension. My friends, when you receive a revelation, you don't pry into the spirit realm to get it. God himself begins to part things to enable you to see what you've never been able to see before. Sometimes this happens when you're reading your Bible, when suddenly you just see something. It was always there, but you were never able to see it until the Holy Spirit opened it up for you. And John says, I was in the Spirit. Somehow, in some way, miraculously, I separated that line which separates the natural realm from the spirit realm. And somehow, I found myself in a spiritual dimension. And then he says, this occurred on what day? The Lord's Day. Well, everybody assumes that's either the Sabbath or Sunday, and both of those are incorrect. The word that is used here is the word kuriakas. The word kuriakas was a technical term, a brand new word that was only used in one way, and therefore it can only have one possible meaning. It cannot have multiple meanings. This word kuriakas was coined during the time of the emperor Domitian. And the emperor Domitian said he was the lord of the universe. He was the God of gods. And because he said he was the Lord of all, Domitian set aside one day of every month. He called it the Lord's Day. Kuriakas. That's where this word comes from. And on that day, the entire Roman Empire was to get on their knees, bow before his image. History says he was so consumed with his own worship that Rome and the Roman Empire was filled with his images, and every good Roman citizen on that day was to bow before this human man who called himself the Lord of the universe, and they were to burn a pinch of incense before his image. 
That's what Kuriakas is, which here is translated as the Lord's Day, which means this moment, when Jesus steps into that cave, the day that Jesus chose to do this was not just any day. It wasn't just any day. John knew what day it was. He had been sent to that cave. He'd been sent to that island by Domitian. He knew this was Curiacas, that while he was there suffering, the rest of the Roman Empire on that very day was worshiping Domitian. And on that day, the real Lord of the universe stepped into John's cave. Wow, this is so powerful. And John says, I heard a voice as of a great trumpet. Great trumpet in Greek is the word megaphone. A great voice. It was a booming, booming voice. And John makes an amazing statement. He says, I turned to see the voice. That's verse 13. But there's a problem with that because you don't see a voice. But he says, I turned to see the voice. John knew that voice. He had carried the sound of that voice in his heart and in his soul for 60 years. It had been at least 60 years since he had physically heard the voice of Jesus, but that voice had never left his memory. And when he heard the voice, he knew whose voice it was. And the Bible says he turned, in Greek, the word epistrepo, which describes a physical element to this experience. He literally physically turned around, even though he was in the spirit realm, he physically turned because it was coming from behind him. And being turned, look at what he says. I saw seven golden candlesticks. The seven candlesticks were representative of the seven churches. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. Like unto is very important. In one way, it looked like Jesus. In another way, it did not look like Jesus. And now in Revelation chapter 1, John is going to have a revelation. Everybody say revelation. The Holy Spirit is parting the curtain, and John's going to see those aspects of Jesus which his human eyes had never seen. This is not a new Jesus. It's the same Jesus. This is just the elements of Jesus that no human eye had ever seen. But now the Holy Spirit was parting the curtain so John could see. He could behold what no other eye had ever beheld. And notice what he sees. I saw one like unto the Son of Man. It had the form of Jesus. On one hand, it looked like Jesus. It was the form of Jesus. Clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And here's my point today. When the Bible says Jesus was standing there with a golden girdle, girt about the paps, the word paps means the chest, the upper part of the chest. A golden girdle describes a belt in the ancient world, emperors did not wear belts around their waist. They wore them around their chest. And their garments flowed from that belt. So that when a king would walk, his garment would swoop as he walked among his people. It was a very grand, very beautiful event. But the belt around the chest 
was intended to display majesty. It was intended to display power, wealth. But there were very few kings that had enough money to have a belt fashioned of pure gold. Most kings, including Roman emperors, who were the rulers of the world at that time, they did not have belts around their chest that were fashioned of pure gold. They were fashioned of material with strands of gold. But when John sees Jesus, the belt around his chest is fashioned of pure gold. In fact, the word gold that is used here is the Greek word krusos. It describes refined gold. It is the most expensive of all gold. There's no gold more expensive than this. Jesus stands there as the emperor of the world. And on that day, John does not see Jesus as the Lamb of God. But he sees Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords in all of his majesty. No greater king, no one mightier, no one with more power, no one with more wealth. There is no king to be compared to this king. And the king of the universe stepped into that cave and paid a visit to this soldier who was suffering for his faith. This is so amazing to me. It is just amazing to me. I don't know if you can tell this, but I love the Bible. I just love the Bible. The Bible is so filled with revelation. Do you know how old John was when this event took place? John was 92 years old. 92 years old. Pastor Dwayne, you would think that by the time you get to our age or a little older, we've already had all the revelations we're going to have, that we've been studying the Bible all of our life. Is there anything left to learn? But when John was 92, he saw Jesus like he had never seen Jesus. And my friends, I want to tell you, Jesus is wanting to reveal himself to you like you have never seen him before. And here is the thing. There's no better place to have a revelation than when you're in a cave and you're in trouble. That abandoned place became his place of divine visitation. And Jesus revealed himself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And my friends, I want to tell you, if you're in a cave today suffering physically in your health, you are in a great place for the spirit realm to part and you to see Jesus as the one who is the healer of all of your afflictions. He wants to reveal himself to you according to what you need. If you're in a bad financial place, he wants to reveal himself to you as the God that gives as Jehovah Jireh. He wants to reveal himself to you as El Shaddai. Whatever it is that you need, if you will open your heart and allow the Holy Spirit to transport you there, the Holy Spirit, who is the great revealer, will say, hey, 
let me pull the strings on the curtain and the Holy Spirit will begin pulling and that realm will begin to open and you will begin to see Jesus as you need to see him, as you need to know him. And he'll be revealed to you not just on an intellectual level, but he will step into your place as the healer of your marriage, as the healer of your body, the healer of your kids, the restorer of your family, the blesser of your finances, whatever it is that you need. He is all of it. He is the alpha. He is the omega. Alpha is the beginning of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the end. That formula literally means I'm the beginning, I'm the end, I'm everything in between. There is nothing that I am not. Is that amazing? That is the Jesus that we serve, which means anything you need him to be today. That's what he wants to be to you. My wife and I have been through some pretty deep, dark places as we walked with God through the years. When I read the Apostle Paul's testimony in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, <laughs> when I read it, I think I could add to the list. He describes all the things he's been through. We've been robbed, never been stoned, but we have experienced so many things that Paul describes. And in every event that we have been through, we have never been abandoned. It has always become a place of divine revelation and divine visitation which took us to the next realm. Now just let me end the story. Domitian died. John outlived the emperor who sent him to the Isle of Patmos. And when John was released, he had amnesty, he got on his ship, sailed home to Ephesus, reassumed his position about the age of 94, maybe 95. And as that old man after Patmos, he wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and in John chapter 1, verse 5, John writes these words, and the light shined in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. That's what the King James Version says, but the word comprehended is a Greek word, catalambano. A better translation would be, the light shined in darkness, and the darkness did not have the ability to take it down and take it out. The darkness did not have the ability to suppress the light. He wrote in 1 John and said, we have a faith that over." comes the world. This was a man that had had a visitation. He had had an experience with Jesus. And when John wrote about overcoming, this was a man who had literally overcome. And when he wrote those words, he was writing as a man who had been an overcomer because of this visitation with Jesus. And my friends today, Jesus wants to make a visitation to you. He wants to reveal himself to your home, to your marriage, to your health, to your kids. He's just waiting for you, and he will, genomai, he'll take you into an experience. You don't know how to do it. You can't produce it, but Jesus will step into your realm, and he will change you. I'd like you to bow your heads. I want to pray for you. I'm going to give this to Pastor Dwayne. Father, we thank you for the amazing Bible. It is amazing. We thank you for the living Word of God. Holy Spirit, we ask you to open the Scriptures to us today, and we thank you for opening the seal of the book and causing us to step into your Word today.
I pray for people in this room today that need a visitation in their marriage, in their finances, in their health, with their kids, with their business, whatever it is. Lord, you are everything. You are the alpha. You are the omega. You're everything in between. I ask you, Lord, to be whatever you need to be for every person in this place. In Jesus' name. Thank you for watching and being a part of our online family. Subscribe to our channel for access to all of our videos and live services. You can also be notified when a new service becomes available if you ring the notification bell. We cannot do this without you. You can support this ministry and help us reach more people with the word by giving at reslife.org give. Thanks again for watching. Be blessed.